Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look at verses, I'm going to read the whole thing, but we're going to focus on verses 7 to 24 this morning. We will be back in Revelation 2 next week, just so you're aware, but, but for this morning, Genesis chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible, you have one of these, we have these at the back, you can take home and keep for free. These Bibles are for free. This Bible here is not for free, but you can use it here while you're here. Um, this is under your chair, and Genesis 3 is on page, it's in the very beginning of your Bible, so page 2. Page two of the Pew Bible, uh, the three is the big number, that's the chapter number, and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers, if this is your first time looking at the Bible. Genesis 3, 1 through 24, what a great passage. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world in six days. He created man and woman. After Genesis 3, the curse is spreading throughout the whole world and ends up in the Tower of Babel where God scatters people, and then God promises Abraham that he'll bless the world And the promise goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and that's the book of Genesis. So here, right, to set off the curse and to set off this whole promise of blessing, you need to get the curse first. And so Genesis 3, um, this is a hinge, a major hinge in the story of the Bible. Hear then God's word from Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was most cunning, was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. 
And he said to the man, because you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat the bread. You'll eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and take from the tree of life and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May his word, may the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Father, we pray now that you would take this word that you have just spoken and hide it in our hearts that we would not sin against you. We pray that you would write it on our hearts and that you would cause us to love your word, to love your son, to love your spirit, and to love you, Heavenly Father. We pray that you would give us a faith in your word, that we would believe what you say, and that that faith would transform our hearts and lives. So speak to us, Father. We all have similar and different needs, and we pray that your word would minister to us all, that we might continue to take your word and your love and spread it to our neighbors and the nations for your glory. Help us now, we pray, for apart from you, we can do nothing. I need your help, Father. We need your help. So help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Will Cain from CNN.com in 2013 wrote an article after the Boston bombing, the Boston Marathon bombing. You remember the Boston Marathon bombing that happened? He wrote about the, he wrote three dead bodies, 20 to 30 missing limbs, more than 180 injured, can force us to revisit that age-old question, what is the state of man's nature? This is on CNN.com. What is the state of man's nature? Is he inherently good or evil? The Boston Marathon bombings have presented us with the dilemma again. And then he says that, you know, um, this is between Locke and Hobbes, and Hobbes had a pessimistic view of man, but he says that the pessimistic view of man that he's evil is wrong, the article goes on to say. He says, events such as this, or rather men responsible for men, events such as this, some of you know the bombing that happened, um, they don't define us. The, the, the perpetrators, the bombers, they don't define us, Will Cain writes. Actor Patton Oswalt wrote this, and he quotes Patton Oswalt, who says, if it is one person or a hundred people, that number, that, that number is not even a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the population on this planet. And the vast majority stands against that darkness 
And like white blood cells attacking a virus, they dilute and weaken and eventually wash away the evildoers. And more importantly, the damage they wreak. This is beyond religion or creed or nation. We would not be here if humanity were, inher were inherently evil. We'd have eaten ourselves alive long ago. And more, he continues. So when you spot violence or bigotry or intolerance or fear or just garden variety misogyny, hatred or ignorance, just look it in the eye and think, the good outnumber you and we always will. End quote. Those are Patton Oswalt's thoughts. Man is inherently good. And Will Cain agrees. He says, exactly. At least that's what I think. And then he goes on to talk about the Boston bombing. So there was a picture of a man, the, the cowboy, um, Carlos, with the, the man with the cowboy hat, Carlos Arredondo, the cowboy-hatted hero, who, with a bomb still ringing in his ears, runs into the mayhem and runs into the mess and he starts helping people, uh, starts helping people out. He's extraordinary, Will Cain writes. And then he writes this. I think he says more about us than whoever dropped a pressure cooker at the marathon on Monday. So what is humanity like? Is it like the cowboy-hatted hero or is it like the bombers? And then he tells a story about a man named Jeff Bauman who just a few minutes ago was cheering on his wife with his young life and health before him. And a few moments later, he's there without his legs bombed away. And so Arredondo helps him and he stays with him until he goes into the ambulance. And there's a picture there of the two of them. And, he, and Will Cain says, that moment defines us. You look at that moment, that's what defines humanity. It's Arredondo's heroism that defines humanity. It's also Bauman's gaze. He literally, he's literally three quarters of the person he was minutes before. And yet he almost calmly looks forward. So that's the end of this article. And he's basically saying, what defines us? The heroism of the cowboy, the, the cowboy-hatted hero, that defines humanity. Or you could even look at the one who's now three-fourths of the person he was, Jeff Bauman, and him calmly looking forward. That defines humanity, not the evil of the bombers. So who's right? What defines humanity? Is man... Inherently good, or is man inherently evil? I think Genesis 3 helps us with this issue, and it goes a little bit beyond it. So we'll, we'll dig into Genesis 3 here in a second, but let me just say one more thing by way of introduction. Well, let's get a survey going here. How many of you say man is inherently evil? Raise your hand. How many of you say man is inherently good? Raise your hand. You guys all disagree with these two? Will Cain and um, the actor Patton Oswalt? How many of you say, well, none of you say it because none of you raise your hand for that. How many of you say it's both? Okay, some of you? Yeah, okay, some of you raise your hand for both. I mean, being a hero and going out there is certainly a good thing. We do have some good in us in the sense that we're made in God's image still. But it is true that the Bible says there is none who does good, not even one, because even our goodness is not for God's glory, and therefore it's not good. But that's a further theological point than we have time to explore this morning. So let's look at the story here. I just read you the story in Genesis 3, 1 through 24. This passage makes sense of our world because evil exists, bombing exists, sin exists, goodness exists. How do we put all this together? What is going on here? How do we deal with sin 
that's in the world and sin in our own lives if evil exists. Well, in the story of Genesis 3, you know the story. It's Satan versus the woman. The, the serpent um, slithers. Well, maybe he doesn't slither yet because he, he still has his legs, right? Perhaps, or he's not on his belly yet. So the serpent goes into the Garden of Eden. He starts talking to the woman, which the woman doesn't find strange at all for whatever reason. Um, C.S. Lewis thinks that maybe animals were able to talk before, or maybe that's, that's kind of what his characters do before the fall. Uh, there might be something to that. But so the, the serpent talks to the woman. She talks back. Did God really say you can't eat this fruit? No, we could eat the, we, we can't eat any we can't eat this fruit or touch it or we will die. And the serpent says, No, you're not gonna die. And he contradicts God. The woman added a little bit to God's word, but we're not focusing on one through six this morning. No, you're not gonna die. God knows you're gonna be just like him. So then she stares again at the fruit, thinks about it. Hmm, it does look yummy, and I am hungry, and it does look like it will make me wise like God. I wonder why God doesn't want me to do this, perhaps. I mean, she might be thinking something like that. So she takes the fruit, and she eats it. She takes a bite of it. She eats it, and then she gives it to her husband, and where was he? With her. Passivity here of the man was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of them were opened. They realized they're naked. So they quickly gather some of the biggest leaves they could find, cover themselves, stitch together some sort of cloths to to hide their nakedness, and then they hear the sound of God walking in the garden. So they hide. They hide among the trees. God's walking there and says, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, I heard your voice, and so I, I hid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? Uh, the woman that you gave me, she gave it to me, and I ate it. And, 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 and then God says, well, what did you do? Is it, what, what have you done? And she says, the serpent tricked me. And then he looks at the serpent, doesn't ask the serpent a question. He curses the serpent. Cursed are you. You're going to crawl on the ground all the days of your life, and, and uh, the, your offspring and the woman's offspring are going to wage war against each other. There will be hostility. I'm going to put hostility between the two of you, and you will strike his heel, and he will crush your head. He curses the woman, or he talks to the woman and judges the woman. He judges the man. The woman's going to have pain in childbirth now, and she's going to want to control her husband, and the husband is, is going to work the, the ground, and it's going to be laborious and toilsome, and it's going to fight back and rebel against him, and the ground is now cursed. And then Adam names his wife Eve, the mother of all the living. God makes loincloths for them to cover them, and then God kicks them out of the garden and puts angels, cherubim, and a flaming whirling sword, sort of like that, to, to block the entrance, you know, like the, the jump rope, and you're like looking at it and like, can you get in? Like there's a whirling sword and blocking the entrance. Can you actually get through to get into the entrance of, east of Eden? I, I doubt it. You know, when God puts the sword up there and it's whirling around, I think it's impossible for anyone to try to, with that and the angels, it's impossible for you to get back in the garden. But on the east side of the garden, there's the entrance and exit, and God blocks it so that the man can't eat from the tree of life. And that's a story we have here in Genesis. It's good to think about this story and reflect upon it, and even just tell the story again, because this really defines so much of our lives. Now, we have a problem that, that's in our lives, and it's, it's defined here in the story. It's that we are sinners, aren't we? Humans are sinners by nature and by choice. 
Even Christians experience sin in their lives. This here, from here we learn, I mean, this is the beginning of the doctrine of original sin. What is original sin? Uh, one affirmation of faith says this, we believe that as the head of the human race, Adam's fall became the fall of all his posterity, all of us, in such a way that corruption, guilt, death, and condemnation belong properly to every person. All persons are thus corrupt by nature, enslaved to sin, and morally unable to delight in God and overcome their own proud preference for the fleeting pleasures of self-rule. So even if you do a heroic act, it's not for delight in God and to kill proud preference of fleeting self-rule. Even our good is sinful. And that's why we say, yeah, we're inherently evil. But we do have some capabilities of doing some good for selfish reasons, sinful reasons. So that's the problem, is that all humans have original sin, we're, we're born, we're sinners by nature and by choice. And we experience this every day, don't we? I mean, aren't you as a Christian tired and fed up with sin wreaking unnecessary havoc in your life and in the lives of those you love? I mean, it's tiring. You just want to get rid of it all. If you could wave a magic wand or snap a finger and, you know, and, and get rid of it all, we just want the havoc of sin to be gone from our lives from our church's life, from our, our community's life, from our society's life. That's a good desire. We're tired of it. How do we deal with sin until Jesus comes back again? We know when Christ comes, it is like snapping a finger, and it will be all made right. But until Jesus comes, what are we to do in the meantime? Here's the main goal of Genesis 3, specifically verses 7 to 24. Here's the main goal. Recognize your experience of sin's effect effects so that you turn to God alone for blessing. Recognize your experience of sin's effects so that you turn to God for blessing. Because the sin's effect is the curse, right? Recognize your experience of the curse of sin in your life, the effects of sin, so that you turn to God for blessing or salvation. In this passage here, Genesis 3, we see five effects of sin, five expressions of the curse of sin, if you like, okay? So, um, we want you to turn to God. This text wants us to turn to God in our experience of sin. So, number one, here's point number one, verses seven and eight. So, so we have the temptation, verses one through six, Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and then you get to verse seven, and it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made a covering for themselves. So, once they, once they ate the fruit, they bit, ate the fruit, their eyes were open, and they got this weird feeling that they've never felt in all of their existence. They felt a sense of shame. Shame. So point number one, you experience shame, so turn to God for peace. So the first effect is shame. You experience shame, so turn to God for peace. That's number one. That's in verses seven and eight. So they made coverings for themselves, and the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the Garden of Eden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden because of their shame. Shame is a consequence of sin, and it's a manifestation of the reality of death. Shame shows that we are spiritually alienated. In your sin, you have alienated yourself spiritually from God. Something deep and real and profound goes on when you experience shame. And I hope that you've experienced shame this week. Not because I hope you've sinned, it's because I know you've sinned. We've all sinned this week, but some of us have gotten so good at, at drowning out shame 
that we don't feel the appropriate effect and we numb ourselves. But I hope that you have felt this spiritual alienation when you have sinned this week. What is shame? One person defines shame as a sense of unease within yourself at the heart of your being. A sense of unease within yourself. Something's not right here. Something's not sitting right in my life. David Powlison, biblical counselor, writes, it's a sense of failure before the eyes of the one who's looking at you. Before the eyes of the one who's looking at you. A sense of failure. A sense of shame. A sense of unease. And it doesn't even have to be just God's eyes that look at you. When you get caught and someone catches you with something that you know you shouldn't be doing, you feel a sense of unease. You feel a sense of shame, a sense of failure. And we feel this today. You could feel a sense of shame while you're listening to a sermon. I could feel a sense of shame while I'm preaching a sermon. You could feel it during the singing or on your way home. Feeling a sense of shame is, is normal for sinners who are sensitive to it. And so what do we try to do with our shame? We try to deal with it on our own, right? We have our own solutions. We compare ourselves. Maybe this is what, what you might do. Maybe you compare yourself to other people. Well, I'm, I feel bad, but let me think of someone who's worse than me. So you think of someone who's worse than you. You're like, well, I'm not as bad as this person. I'm not as bad as my neighbor over here. I'm not as bad as those people. I'm not as bad as that church member over here. And you could, you could find a way to, to um, minimize and reduce the sense of shame by sinful comparisons to other people to make yourself to make you feel better about yourself. Didn't David try to hide his sense of shame? David committed adultery and murder, and he didn't deal with his shame or sin for a whole year. He sat on the throne and pretended to worship God for a whole year before he dealt with his shame. It took a prophet to rebuke him. Did he not feel any? Uh, he probably felt, he felt a little bit of shame when Bathsheba got pregnant, so he tried to get the husband to come by. So he knew he did still want to cover it up, but notice he tried to do it on his own strength. When Peter felt a sense of shame, what did he do? When he denied Christ three times, he ran away and what? And he wept. When Judas felt a sense of shame, he killed himself. When Adam here and Eve felt a sense of shame, they covered themselves and hid. They covered themselves and hid. Now, what should they have done? Here's application now. What should they have done? And what should you do when you feel a sense of shame? They hid from God. When they sinned, what should they have done towards God, to God? Should they have hid from God? No, what should they have done? Run to Him. They should have ran toward God, not away from God. What should you do when you feel a sense of shame because of your sin? Don't run away from God. Stop hiding. Don't cover it up. Run to God. But he's mad at me. He's angry at my sin. He's your only hope. The sense of peace that you lost because of your sin, you keep, you keep covering it up. You're not going to feel a sense of peace. The only way to peace is to run to the God of peace. So we should run to God for peace and for healing and for restoration. And we should encourage each other to do that as a church family. And the good news to non-Christians, if you're not Christian here, is that there is a solution for your shame. You don't have to figure it out yourself. Actually, here's more good news. It doesn't sound like good news, but it is. You can't figure it out yourself. That's the first thing. Secondly, so you experience shame, and so turn to God. Secondly, a second experience in verse 7, 
It says the eyes of them were both opened and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made what for themselves? Coverings for themselves. So you experience not only shame, but you experience separation in your relationships. You experience separation in your relationships. So here is Adam and Eve, naked and actually very interesting. Um, interestingly, when you, when you look at um, this, it says in chapter 2, verse 25, at the end of chapter 2, before this, the fall, God made Adam and Eve, this is the first wedding, and says both, man, both the man and his wife were naked, yet they felt no shame. They felt no shame. And now all of a sudden, they're still married. There's no other people there. They're naked, and yet they feel what? Ashamed. And so they're actually, the second consequence is that sin separates you from other people. It separates you from other image bearers. Whether you feel it or not, or not, it does. You can't control, like this, the, the satanic lie, is that we can control the effect of our sin. You can't control it. Your sin will always separate you from other people. That's what it does by its very nature. And so sin separates you from others. Before, Adam and Eve were completely open with each other. They were naked and felt no shame. Now they're not only covering themselves from God, they're covering themselves from each other. They got to hide something from each other now. Because of sin. Adam has to cover herself. Eve has to cover herself. They're no longer open to each other. It ine sin inevitably isolates you from those around you. Sin separates relationships. When you deal with someone's sin, like um, sometimes we have this question, especially in a church family like this. If someone offends me and hurts me, can't I just cover it because love covers a what? Multitude of sins. Do I really have to confront people? I mean, they sin. Do I have to? Do you always have to confront people? No, you don't always have to. So when do you confront and when do you not? My basic answer is when you can't get over it. If you could literally forget about it, but you have to be honest with yourself here because sometimes we say we don't forget about it because we don't want to deal with it, but we don't forget about it. And how do you know? Because you keep thinking about it. Or, secondly, you bring it up to somebody else. What do we call that? Gossip. It bugs you so much that you have to talk about somebody, even if it's not the person directly. That is not getting over it. And the only way to deal with that is to talk to the person. Why? Why do you have to talk to the person? Because sin separates. And when you feel that separation because of sin, it bugs you. If I sin against you, it has to bug you. It will separate us. So we either deal with it or we ignore it and let sin continue to separate us. Those are only two options. Apply grace to, to bridge the separation or keep the separation because you don't want to deal with the sin. Those are the, Because sin will separate. Even if you try not to. Oh, I'm just going to love them. I'm going to get over it. Well, when you're not over it, it, guess what? Even though you keep talking and you say hi to them and you give them a hug on Sunday you still feel the separation, even if they don't, because you're bitter inside, because sin has separated you, or their sin or your sin has separated you. So we can't be fully open with people. We need to keep secrets, and we get scared when someone knows our secret. If they really found out who we were, we would feel ashamed, right? If, I mean, this sense of shame and separation, if, if in a group of people, if you were the only person without clothes on, even just imagining that, you just already feel like, oh, shoot. Like, I mean, you feel the sense of exposure, right? 
You feel the sense of shame, and you would want to separate yourself from people because of, because of the fact that we're, that's the effect of sin. That's, we, we live in a sin-cursed world, and that's why you feel the way you feel here. And by the way, some people use Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as an argument for nudist colonies. Well, the only way to get back into, if this is wrong and this is an effect of sin, then let's just be free. That's not the way back, okay? <laughs> Clothes are a good thing now in this cursed world. Clothes are necessary in this church, right? <laughs> it's necessary when you gather, you must clothe yourselves. Why? Why? Because on this side of the fall, that's not how you fix it. You don't fix the... Because we do have sin now, we have something legitimate things to be scared of. We have legitimate shame. We have legitimate separation. It would be sinful to ignore that in terms of immodesty. Sin separates here. And so what's the application for us? The application is not to just, I'm not talking about like physically now, just getting rid of your clothes. I'm talking about spiritually now. The answer is not to be vulnerable and open up and share everything about all that you've done with everyone all the time. You need to be vulnerable with people, and you need to be open in your life, especially with your sins, because it will destroy you and destroy those around you. It will. Whether you like it or not, it will. So you do need to share, but that doesn't mean you share with everyone all the time everything, okay? So the, the way back is to, instead of letting it separate, let, just like the first one, when you feel a sense of shame, don't run away from God, run to God. When you feel the separation from people, don't run from your church family, run to your church family, Confess your sins appropriately to the appropriate people and deal with your sins. Because if you don't, you will find yourself isolated. You might attend, you might stop attending, but when you come here, you feel lonely still. How do you feel lonely in the midst of your church family? Sin. That's how you feel lonely in the midst of your church family. You hide sin and you separate yourself. So you could be here week after week and feel alone in some ways because you're not letting people, you're not dealing with whatever brokenness and sin um, might be affecting you. All right, that's the second consequence or second effect of sin. You experience separation. So sin or shame, separation, a third consequence in verse 8. What else do you experience? In verse 8, it says, Then the man heard the sound of the Lord walking, of God walking, Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And so what did they do? They what? Hid themselves from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So you experience shame you experience separation, and thirdly, you experience stupidity. You experience stupidity. Now, they're not all S's. This is my last S. I think it's, we're going to move past S's now, but you experience stupidity. What do I mean by stupidity? Like, I'm not saying that just as a, a, a mean, provocative word. Like, this is literally stupid. Like, they're literally experiencing stupidity. Why? They just ate the fruit. They hear God coming. I got a good idea. Let's hide in the trees. And so Eve runs to a tree. Eve, I could still see your leg. You're sticking out. Go to a bigger tree. <laughs> Go climb higher. And so you, you come up with all of these ways of, of finding a way to, to hide from God. Can, I mean, can you hide from God? No, but you know what? When you give in to sin, it makes you stupid. You start believing stupid things that you could actually hide from God, that you could actually control the consequences of your sin, that you can actually control the separation. That you, you, just, you literally get irrational. Sin is insane, and it makes you insane. It makes you irrational. It makes you stupid. And I'm not talking about like you don't know two plus two equals four anymore. I'm talking about the way you deal with it and the way you deal relationally. When you don't deal with sin the right way, you deal with it the foolish way, the stupid way. You actually think you can hide from God in a tree. 
That makes no sense. But for Adam and Eve, it made a lot of sense at that moment because they felt the effects of sin. Sin causes you to come up with foolish, sinful, irrational solutions to the problems your sin creates. It's like being thirsty. You've heard me say this many times. It's like being thirsty in the ocean on a boat. You're on a lifeboat or a life raft in the ocean, and you're thirsty. You feel like you're dying of thirst. And so what do you do? Well, there's water everywhere. You're in the ocean. And so you drink water. And what does that do? Does that quench your thirst? Not salt water, no. It just makes you more thirsty. You just make it worse. That's what we do with sin. We sin, and then we have our wise solutions, right? I know how to handle it. I'm going to hide in a tree. I know how to handle this thirst. I'm going to drink more salt water. And what do we do? What do we end up doing with our sin situation? We make it what? We make it worse. We make it worse. That's what sin does. We think, you know, Numbers 32, 23 says, your sin will catch up with you. Or to, to the ESV might say, your sin will find you out. I like that. That verse has appropriately scared me through the years in my life. Your sin will find you out. It makes no sense to think you can cover it up. It makes no sense to think you can get away with it. Your sin will find you out. And so you, better, you might as well deal with it. Today, we might, the stupidity might look this way. We might say things like, you know what? I don't need a church. I can handle this sin on my own. I don't need brothers and sisters. I don't need fellow Christians. I can handle this on my own. That is crazy talk. I know it doesn't sound crazy if you're stuck in your sin. It feels like literally that's the only solution. It is not the only solution. It's the worst solution. It's not a good solution. So you might think, I don't need the church. I can handle this on my own. I don't need God for this one. I don't need prayer or the Bible. Time will just heal my shameful feeling. And time will not heal it. Time will delude you and make it worse. All sin manifests itself and will push you towards stupidity and insanity. A particular problem in our day, it's not the only one, but it is, and it's just been on our minds a lot lately, and Nymark's journal just came out with it online, but um, there's an article called The Pastor and, the, and Pornography, and it talks about how often pastors look at pornography and are, in, and are addicted to pornography and how they hide that sin. And what, what we want to say here is, um, it is stupid to figure out your own way to deal with it. You can't just hide, and I'm not only for pastors, it's true for pastors, it's true for all of you, and it's not just that sin, it could be a lot of sins, but that one for men, at least nine out of ten men, and is it four or five out of ten women indulge in this? Um, you, can't, you can't solve it by yourself, those types of, any sin really. You, you, you need your brothers and sisters. You need your church family. You need the Lord, and you need His body. You need Christ's body. And so what's the application here? The application is this. Doubt your initial strategy for the solution. And trust God's wisdom. Trust his word and his wisdom for, for dealing with it. Okay? Here's what, here's what I'm saying. Brothers and sisters, when you're in sin, you're naturally going to think of solutions to your sin. You have to. You're gonna, you're gonna be, your sin's going to put you in a certain situation that's not comfortable. You're going to start to, your mind's going to turn and you're going to start to think of solutions. That's good. You need to solve it. But here's what I'm saying. When you're stuck in your sin, you need to doubt your solutions. Your initial strategies are to cover it up and to cultivate it or maybe, I'm done with this sin, but I'm done on my own. It's not happening. So instead, doubt your own wisdom and trust God's wisdom. 
And when I say trust God's wisdom, I'm saying trust the whole Bible. Because some of us as Christians, myself included, we could take some of the Bible, I'm going to obey this verse part, this verse, but that other verse over here, I'm not going to obey that one because that's going to expose me in ways that I don't like that solution. So when I say trust God's wisdom, I'm saying trust the whole Bible's wisdom and not just the parts that deal with you, that that line up with your bad solution. Because your bad solution is almost never fully bad. It's like 80% good and 20% bad, but that's enough to make you not heal and not change. So don't trust your own solutions. Go to God's word. Church family, what does this mean? Brothers and sisters, help each other fight sin. When brothers and sisters ask for your help, don't come up with your own ideas either. Go back to the Bible. We're a Christian church, right? We go to the Bible. We get our knowledge from the Bible. The Bible is sufficient. All scripture is breathed out by God and is sufficient for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man and woman of God might be complete and competent for every good work. So take the Bible and apply the Bible to each other's situations. That's number three. Number four, so you experience shame, you experience separation from relationships, you experience uh, stupidity, and fourthly, you experience blame shifting. You experience blame shifting, so turn to God for humility. Well, what happens with the story? So what, did you eat this fruit? What happened? Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? The woman you what? Gave me. So he blames the woman. You, the woman you gave me, she gave it to me and I ate. And then the woman, what have you done? The, the serpent tricked me. And so they shift blame. What do we do when we sin? What's one of the effects? This is why you know you're still under the effects of sin. We make what? Excuses. We make excuses for sins. We avoid responsibility. We avoid conversations. We avoid our Bibles. We avoid prayer. We avoid God's people. And we think that if we could stay away from all of these things, then the shame will go away. If I just ignore it, it kind of goes away, right? Like the drunkard who says, you know, if I just drink my problems away, my problems will go away. Does it go away? No, in a similar way, if I could just stay away from the church family and stay away from God's word and stay away from the Bible, or at least come here and, and not share it, if I could stay away from, and ignore the sin, then it'll go away. It doesn't go away. You can't make excuses for it either and blame other people. Shifting blame to avoid shame, it's a strategy, shifting blame to avoid shame is a frequent effect of sin and it's, a, it's an expression of our sin nature. Why, do we, why are we so quick to pass the buck? somebody else. We can do this even in our own confession of sin, can't we? I can go to my wife and say, you know, I just need to ask you for forgiveness for my sin because when you do that one thing you always do, oh, I just need you to forgive me for sinfully reacting to that one thing you just always do. Can you please forgive me? So you're, you're sort of confessing, but what am I really doing? I'm blaming her, right? And that's, we can even do that with our, even with our own confession, we can blame people. Please forgive me for all of your sin that's causing me to sin. And you don't deal with your responsibility. You pass the blame to, to, the, to the person that you're fighting with. And that's an effect of sin. We don't want to take responsibility for our sin. Yeah, that doesn't mean other people don't have sins and tempt us to sin. But we, that's never an excuse for your sin. Your sin is always your fault. Always your fault. Your sin is always your fault. You can never blame other people for your sins, at least not legitimately. And when you think about Adam, this, is, this goes back to the stupidity. These, all, these things all hang together. I mean, when you, this is the stupidity of Adam. 
really, when he's, when he's blaming the woman, who is he really blaming? Did you eat this fruit? The woman you gave me. The woman you gave me tempted me, and I ate. Adam is blaming who? God. I mean, this is the apex of stupidity, right? The God who is holy, holy, holy. The God whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil. The God who hates sin with an infinite hatred. He's the one? It's his fault you sinned? Really? Like you're going to blame God for your sin? That makes no sense. God, you're the reason I sinned. It's your fault. And yet, if we look in the mirror now, not just at Adam, how, honest, how often have we honestly thought, especially those who believe in the sovereignty of God, right? God ordains all things. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Everything is worked out according to the counsel of God's will. God predestines all that is and will be. Therefore, my sin was predestined. Therefore, it's not my fault. It's God's fault. We can even use theology to blame God. It was all good theology until that last sentence. And yet we can blame God. Actually, I would say, brothers and sisters, whenever you sin, you do blame God. Whenever you blame shift, you do blame God. You might say it's, I might say it's my wife, I might say it's my kid's fault or my church's fault or my neighbor's fault, but deep down, every shift of blame is an accusation towards God, that it's his fault. No, it's not, I'm not saying God, I won't say God, I would never say that. Yeah, you'd never say it out loud, but that's functionally what you're doing when you're shifting the blame. And that's stupid. So we must take responsibility for our sins. Application for Christians. Brothers, sisters, just admit it. Just admit you sinned and you'll be a far healthier person. You, could, you don't have to keep going on with, with your confession. Just name the sin and say you did it. Don't give explanations. Don't give reasons. Not right away, at least. Just, just call it what it is and stay there. Just say it and stop speaking and let it sit out loud in the conversation. That will make you a far healthier Christian. Blame shifting shrinks and stifles growth because it strangles grace. Blame shifting shrinks and stifles growth because it strangles grace. Excuse-making strengthens immaturity. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6 says, Peter coined the Old Testament, um, in the same way, um, he says, all of you close yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the what? Proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then he says, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, humble yourselves so that God may exalt you at your proper time. If, what does God do to the proud? He what? He resists the proud. And who does he give grace to? The what? The humble. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. When you shift blame for your sin, you know what you're cutting off from yourself? Grace. Because grace comes to the humble. But when you're shifting blame, you're still proud. And you don't get grace from God, you get what? Resistance. You are strangling. So here's God. There's this funnel or like this pipe of grace that he wants to flow down to you. And by your blame shifting, you're literally crushing, you're crushing the pipeline of grace to you because of your excuse making. You're strangling grace and you're shrinking in your soul 
better to just let it flow, let the grace flow, call it what it is, don't make an excuse, and admit it and, and, and feel the conviction and the shame so that you can let, let the grace flow to you. We're so quick to minimize our responsibility to make us feel better. That's backwards. It's harmful. It's not helpful. So take the log, to use Jesus' words, take the log out of your own eye first and foremost. If you're always focusing on the specks of others, you are strangling grace from your soul. If you're not a Christian, here's um, what God is telling you. Recognize that your sin is your fault. Don't blame other people for your sin. That doesn't mean you don't have a tough situation. We live in a broken world. And you will have pressures on your life because of the brokenness of this world and temptations. The devil tempts, the world tempts, and the brokenness of your situation is a pressure on your life. But that is never an excuse to sin. So take both. I want to admit there's pressure. Church family, what does this mean for us? Hold each other accountable. Or um, another analogy is hold their feet to the what? Hold their feet to the fire. When you see another Christian in the church making an excuse for their sins, don't be like, ah, yeah, and then you walk away and think, that guy's making an excuse. <laughs> don't do that. Stay in the conversation. Embrace the awkward conversation. And say, you know what, this is going to be awkward, but I need to keep your feet to the fire. Because if there's no refining fire here, you're not going to grow. So hold each other accountable. Kids, children, as you seek to grow up, just realize that the path to maturity and adulthood Christian adulthood, is taking responsibility and not blaming your parents or your siblings. Okay, children? The moment you stop making excuses for your sin is the moment you, keep, you start growing. And the more you make excuses, the less you'll grow. So learn that while you're young. Don't make excuses for your sins. Parents, I say this to my... Whenever I rebuke the kids or exhort the kids, I always feel like I always have to exhort the parents. I'm not saying every member here is a parent or a child. It's just... I feel like I can't just do one without the other. It's not fair. So parents, don't use your God-given parental authority to excuse your rebellion to God's authority. Well, I'm the parent, so I don't have to admit I'm wrong. Well, no. If you sin, you, you admit you're wrong. You confess, and you ask God and your child for forgiveness if you're sinning against them. Okay, that's the fourth one. So what are the four effects we have so far? Um, shame, uh, separation, stupidity, and blame shifting. And the last effect of sin that we experience because of our sin nature. You experience exile or the curse. I didn't know which one to put here. You experience the curse, so turn to God for restoration. Verses 14 and 24. Let's just summarize it here. So verse 14, what's the woman going to get in verse 16? Because of the curse, what is she going to get? She's going to have pain in what? Childbearing. So, so childbearing, and this could, this could maybe, I mean, there's probably a good debate to have on this, but this could refer also to child rearing. When you have a baby and you raise a baby, what you get is pain, right? That's what you get. That's what, you, what you get is pain. You know, we have some adoptions recently in our church. You're adopting pain. You, give, you, have, you get pregnant, you're, you're giving birth to pain. And that's, that's part of the curse. That's part of the brokenness in this world is that children will break your heart and stomp on it again and again and again. It's, broke, it's a broken world. So childbearing, childrearing, the woman has pain there. That's part of the effect of the fall. The other effect is what? What's, what about her and her husband? She's going to want to what? Rule over him. 
What does that mean? That means that she will seek to manipulate him. She'll seek to manipulate him. Um, she'll find ways, and, um, and their women, just like men, we're all creative with our sins. They'll find creative ways, subtle ways, ways where, ways where they can control their husband or control other people without, without them knowing they're being controlled. You know, someone, you know the, the Filipino pastors would always joke and say, um, I'm the head of the household, but my, hus- but my wife is the neck. And she turns the head wherever she wants to turn it, right? <laughs> it's like, I'm the head, but yeah, but she's the neck. And, you know, she just shows me which direction to go in. <laughs> um, you know, but, but sometimes, sadly, that's true. I mean, that, that there's that, that the temptation to manipulate and control your spouse as a wife is real. Manipulation, that's part of the curse. For the man, what's his, what's his, what's his consequence here? Verse 19 Verse 17 and 19, cursed is the ground, now the ground is cursed, and by painful labor you're going to eat of it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles. So you rebelled against me, and God is, or Adam is supposed to rule over the ground, right? And now if you rebel against me, guess what the ground's going to do to you? The ground is now going to rebel against you. And so now when you have work, you hate work sometimes, right? You go to job, you go to your work, you go to your job, and you're like, ah, oh, am I just doing this for a paycheck? This is laborious, this is tiring, this is, seems futile, right? And it is in some ways. It's part of the curse. That all work, even for me as a pastor, like it's not always a joy and just glad it's not your fault that it's, this is just a sin and a curse in my own heart. It's that, that sin is a curse and there's a curse here, there's brokenness. And so work becomes laborious and nature rebels against humanity. Not just in terms of work, but earthquakes kill people. I was reading, I mean, there's this one story on CNN about snow, a few years ago, snowboarders, five snowboarders found dead after an avalanche. That's nature rebelling against humanity. That's part of the curse, that we live in a broken, fallen world. It's not just humans sinning, even, not the world, the earth sins, but it's broken, and it hurts us in the midst of it. And so Adam and Eve are ultimately, here's the ultimate expression of, of the curse and of the, of the sin. Look at verse 24, 24. So what did God do to the man? In verse 24, what did God do to the man? He what? He drove the man where? Out of the garden. So this is where you have exile. You have exile here. Man is kicked out of the garden. He's banished from God's presence. He's banished from God's truth and life and joy. God lived in the garden with them. He walked with them in the garden. He communed with them in the garden. Eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ. It's to commune with God and enjoy God in his presence. In the new heavens and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, we will reign with him and we will see his face and his name will be on our foreheads and we will enjoy God forever. But not when there's sin, not when there's the curse. The curse means you are exiled. You are banished from the joyful, life-giving presence of the triune God. That's the effect. He's driven out of the garden. He's locked out of the garden. There's a sword. There are angels, and he can't come back in. So you experience exile in your sin. So, so let's summarize all of the five effects. So with, with sin in our lives, by nature and by choice, what do we experience? We experience shame. So turn to God for peace. We experience uh, separation in relationships. So run toward each other in dealing with sin. We experience stupidity. So run to God for his wisdom from his word rather than your own solutions. Uh, fourthly, we experience blame shifting. So turn to God for humility. 
in taking responsibility. And then lastly, we experience exile. So what's the solution for exile? And really, what's the solution for all of this? It's in verse 15. Look at verse 15. I will put hostility between your, you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring, he will strike your head, serpent, and you will strike his heel. The woman has offspring. Now, this is very strange in the Bible. Derek Kidner is a New Test, uh, Old Testament commentator, and he points out the strange fact that everywhere in the Bible you find offspring, it's always the male's offspring. It's the male's seed. This is the only passage in the Bible where the offspring is tied to, it says, her offspring. Huh. Why is this her offspring and not the man's offspring? Well, there was one who was born of a woman and not a man. Wasn't there? Who's that? Jesus Christ. So who's this offspring who's going to crush the serpent's head? It's Christ. This is the solution for our, our exile. This is the solution for our sin, that, that the woman would have a seed, have offspring who would come and crush the head of Satan. In Abra- Abraham's promise in Genesis 12, your offspring, through your offspring, the, the nations will be blessed. And in Genesis 49, it's going to be coming from the tribe of Judah, and then it goes from the, tri- the lineage of David, and we find out it's King Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, uh, legal son of Joseph, king of Israel, king of the Jews. Messiah, Savior, serpent crusher, Jesus. That's the solution to our problem. It's the offspring. It's the, God promised a blessing through Abraham for the cursed people because we're cursed in our sin. And we see a picture of this in verse 21. What is the offspring going to do? Well, we get a clue in verse 21. So remember, they cover themselves, and the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, because, or, and he clothed them. What did they clothe themselves with originally? Fig leaves, what does God clothe them with? Skin. Skin of what? Animals. Where do you get skins from animals? You got to kill them, right? You got to sacrifice them. So God sacrifices animals and kills animals to cover their shame. That's the solution. The solution is not just act like it's okay to be naked. No, it's not okay to be naked. I already went over that, right? It's cover it with the sacrifice. And so God gives us a preview, and later, as we know, when we read the Bible, Jesus, the offspring of David, the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of the woman, he would be sacrificed. And we're going to take his body and blood here, I mean, in terms of symbolizing it here, we're going to take the bread and remember that his body is our covering, our shame, our guilt, our exile, our stupidity, our blame-shifting, covered in the sacrifice of the broken body of Jesus for us. If you're not a Christian, here's the good news. Jesus died for your sins. You're a sinner who deserves damnation for your sins. God is holy. He will damn all of us for our sins. We all deserve condemnation. The good news is Jesus Christ died for us. He was damned for us. He was condemned on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead defeating Satan's sin and death so that everyone who repents from their sins and trusts in Jesus will be forgiven and will have access back to the garden. We'll eat from the tree of life one day because Christ will cover us with his death and resurrection. So if you're not a Christian, 
Remember this, Jesus was cursed by hanging on the tree for us, by dying on the cross. He became the curse for you so you don't have to be cursed if you will repent from your sins and trust in him. So God is inviting you this morning to repent from your sins and trust in him. If you have questions about that, ask me at the back door. But for us as Christians, we don't look back. We're not trying to get back, force our way back to the garden. We look forward to the coming of Christ. And Jesus did too. He said this, and we're going to take communion, but this is a quote from Matthew 26 when he did the first communion. He said, for this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, from this moment, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it in a new way in my Father's kingdom with you. Even Jesus isn't looking back. Where's Jesus looking? Forward. The way back to paradise is not to go back, force your way back to paradise. It's to look forward to Christ's return. It's to trust in his broken body and spilled blood and live together as a church family, spreading the gospel to our neighbors and the nations until Christ returns. So to close, run to God every time you sin. Face your evil, face your sin in the truth and knowledge and grace of God. Don't run from God when you sin. Don't minimize your sin. Face it with Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. If you don't, if you don't run to God for your salvation, you keep trying to figure it out on your own, You'll continually be foolish and ineffective in your dealing with your sin and shame. Your sense of shame will never truly go away and you'll be separated from God in hell forever. But if you repent from your sins and if you trust in Jesus and if you continue to trust in Jesus as you walk through this Christian life, you'll experience God's freedom and grace. You'll feel forgiveness, healing, and peace inside partially until Christ returns. And you'll be restored by God to enjoy him both now in this world and in the new earth to come when Christ returns. You know, um, this story about the, is man inherently good with the hero? He did some good things, right? I mean, he plugged up the arteries that were bleeding, and he got him to an ambulance and made sure he was okay. And that was good. But even in man's somewhat goodness of being able to reflect God's image, as distorted as we do, you know what we can't do? We can't reverse time. We can't make the bomb go away. We can't make the person, we can't give this person his same legs that he just had, right? And even as the guy calmly looks forward, his calmness can't be truly calm. I mean, there's no real calm without your legs. You, you can't, that's not restored just by the goodness of man. You know, he says you get all these white blood cells, that, you know, for the, for the millions of people who won't bomb a marathon, we're going to outnumber you and we're going to destroy you, we're just going to outrun you. Well, we can't outrun you and make legs, Right? We can't outrun you and, and restore a paradise and, and get away, take sin away. Who's the only one who can do that? Only Jesus, right? But Jesus will restore legs, won't he? I mean, if that guy's a Christian, if you're with your brokenness in your life, you will, have, you will get legs again. I will have a good ACL, my own ACL one day. Why? Because you can't do it on your own. Christ is the one who does it. So brothers and sisters, let's rest in Christ as we wrestle with the effects of sin in our lives. Go to him again and again, and we'll go to him right now as we go to the Lord's Supper. Father, take these words and help us. Help us to acknowledge our sin nature and the effects of sin, and help us to rest in Christ and go to Christ again and again as our Savior from our sins and as the blessing for our curse. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.